Amen. Thank you, Miss Heidi. Miss Heidi, appreciate that very much. Excellent. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me. Romans chapter number two. Brother Doug's going to come down the middle if you need an outline. I'd love for you to follow along with us as we continue in this grand chapter and hopefully come close to drawing it to a close this evening and uh, excited about uh, where it's taking us and the culmination in Romans chapter number three. And uh, so I encourage you, if you need an outline, get Brother Doug's attention. And uh, as you see on our outline, you'll see up here above me, and uh, we have just a few things. We've been looked at the charge against the moralistic hypocrite. We've looked at the conduct of the moralistic hypocrite. Now we're finishing up just here for a couple moments, the case against the moralistic hypocrite. And then we'll add one latter thing to it to finish out the chapter, as you'll see it before us. Uh, how is uh, how are we evaluated? How what are we judged upon? What is the material or the substance of us being judged? Well, we've already seen this simple truth. Number one, evaluation is made according to the truth, and there's no arguing with it. The truth lays everything bare. It's wide open. Everything is seen. There's nothing hidden. There's no secrets. There's no twisting. There's no manipulating the truth. And uh, you know, you think of even uh, uh, car accidents. Brother Looney talks uh, uh, referenced this. You know, it's funny. How how uh, people can see the same car accident but explain it different ways, isn't it? And uh, can give excuse or whatever. Well, the truth is the truth. You can't manipulate it. You can't uh, twist it. You can't. The truth is the truth. So we'll be evaluated on the truth. And so if you have nothing to fear, that's a great thing. If, you have, if you've lived according to God's Word and you've done well and righteously, lived righteously, there's nothing to, to fear. The second means of evaluation are our deeds and the things that we do, our works. And for us as Christians, whether they be wood, hay, or stubble, or whether they be precious stones, silver, and those kinds of things. And so reality is our deeds are going to be judged. And then we finished up with a statement just last week, and I think this is a great truth, uh, this simple statement, there's a universality of guilt when every man's deeds and works are judged according to the light and revelation that they have received. To whom much has been given, much more shall be required. We finished up with that understanding. Something Jesus Christ taught, Paul reinforces other writers in the New Testament, reinforce that same thought. To whom much is given. And here you and I stand, we're holding God's word in our hands. We're sitting in a Bible preaching, teaching church. We, many of us have grown up, can I tell you, to whom much has been given, much more shall be required. You and I have it a whole lot better off than many people who have barely heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so to whom much is given, much more is going to be required. And so that's a sobering thought. And we kind of left off. Now, now we want to get to the most important means of evaluation. The thing that is just uh, kind of supersedes everything else. Look with me again. Verse number 16, if you will. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So we're in letter C. We're finishing up this Roman numeral. Evaluation is made according to, as he says it in this verse, the gospel. Um, it's this verse, verse 16, is one of several in the New Testament that establishes Jesus Christ as the judge. Uh, we also understand that already we've seen this verse, we, we glanced at it, we peeked at it, we understand that he moves beyond deeds and works to dealing with the heart. What is the heart? Well, really, the heart, if you think about it, is the, is the most secretive part of mankind. Each of us, we do things, think things in our heart that no man sees. And so in that case, it is the most secretest, or the secretest, excuse me, part of us. 
But we understand it's not hidden from God. We know well what even the psalmist wrote in Psalm 44. He said this, if we have, and I like this, if we have forgotten, that's not an act outwardly. It's literally in our minds and our hearts. If we have forgotten the name of our God, or we stretched out our hands to a strange God, there's a work, shall not God searcheth this out, or search this out, excuse me, for he knoweth the secrets of the heart. And what a great statement. Uh, even our, th- our simplest thoughts, we've detailed this, we understand this, we won't beat the dead, the proverbial dead horse, but we know this. When Jesus Christ walked on this earth, he stood in judgment. Some 2,000 years ago, he stood in judgment of the religious leaders and the Pharisees. In doing so, he often condemned them, not necessarily for their outward deeds, though he did that at times, but more so for their inward motives, their heart attitudes, the sins of the heart. In fact, if you remember looking at the Gospels, what does he call them? He calls them idolaters. He calls them thieves. He calls them, calls them all, uh, all kinds of things, uh, idolaters and adulterers. He, he looks into their very heart. Jesus Christ in flesh form. These men and women, and uh, specifically men who, who thought they had it all together, had the world at large fooled, men and women watching them and looking at them. Christ looks in their heart. And he identifies who they are. You're not some righteous. You're not some perfect follower of God. You're a thief. You're an adulterer. You're an idolater. Those were scathing rebukes for the religious people at that time. Though no one saw their outward actions on their part, they committed sins in their heart. Look and see where this is even drawn out about the Jews a little bit more later specifically. But as we dig deeper into this verse, verse 16, we see the scope of the judgment now is narrowed. What is it narrowed to? Well, it's using the gospel as the means of evaluation of judging. Therefore, uh, we understand that the judgment spoken of here is not for rewards or degrees of judgment like the last, but rather this is a judgment of salvation. We would say that this is the culminating evaluation. God has said, listen, we're going to judge your thoughts. Your thoughts and everything that happens and inside you, we're going to judge you by the truth. And then he said, we're going to judge your deeds. Every person's deeds are going to be brought into judgment. Then the most important, as I said, the most important means of evaluation, the culminating aspect here is this. You're going to be judged by the gospel. So it begs the question, doesn't it? What is the gospel? If you noticed it in verse 16, literally Paul says this, according to my gospel. Now that's interesting, isn't it? We looked at the very beginning of Romans. He talks about the gospel there. We study that aspect. Later on in one of his other letters, we're going to look at it here. It's in 1 Corinthians. It's on your outline there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He gives us a precise definition of the gospel. If anybody ever asks you, what's the gospel? Here's a great definition of it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Notice what Paul explains to the church at Corinth. He says, listen, this is the gospel that I've preached unto you. Here it is in a nutshell. Let me explain it unto you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Here is the gospel. He says this. 
Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. There's a key statement. He's saying in judgment, you stand in the gospel. We'll reference that in a moment, so hang on to it. He says, verse 2, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and then he lists for several verses the proofs of many people who saw jesus christ resurrected and alive you don't know what the gospel is what we're going to be judged according to it's revealed right there the resurrected christ who died on the cross for your salvation and for mine For the sins of all mankind. That's the gospel. Now listen to me. Here's something that Paul alludes to both in Romans and 1 Corinthians 15 there. It's this simple truth. When we look at the gospel, the reality and the fact is this. For every person, the gospel will either save you or it will judge you. That's what verse 16 is establishing. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, it will either save you, it will be the lifeline, the anchor that holds you, or it will be the very thing by which you're judged. Why? Because the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ died for who? The sins of the whole world. And the question is this, what have you done with Christ? That is the final evaluation that everybody will face, that everybody will come face to face with. What have you done with Christ in your heart? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection will either save you or will condemn you. See, all people of every age, we understand, will bow the knee before Christ. It's going to happen. It will either be in salvation or it will be in judgment. But they will bow the knee. And that's essentially what Paul is commending us to understand here. If you and I trust him and his work on the cross for salvation, we do it as verse 16 alludes to within the heart. As Paul says many times over, Romans chapter 10 and other places, you enjoy Christ as your Savior. And that is certainly what Christ and God wants for every person. But if one rejects Christ, if one refuses to put their faith and trust in him, can I tell you what God intended to be a picture of the tree of life, i.e. the cross of Calvary, we now turn into a tree that condemns. Because the cross, to those that believe, what is it? It's glorious. But the cross, to those that don't believe, what is it? It's condemning. It's condemning. It's what they should have looked upon in Jesus Christ and what He did there in that place for their salvation. It, it is not, and, and really what, what is being established in verse 16 is this simple truth. It is not that Jesus Christ could not save us, it is that you would not be saved. The opportunity is there. Anyone who, who is willing to repent can be saved. Judgment will flow based upon the evaluation of what a person has done with Jesus Christ. Whether they have believed the gospel, they put their faith and trust in Christ. We would call this, now Paul presents in verse 16, the ultimate criteria for judgment. Now, as we have put it before you, 
kind of envision the courtroom and the, the, the defendant, all of mankind sitting there. In, in this chapter, we're focusing on the moralistic hypocrite that's there at the defendant table. And the prosecution, Paul, has just gotten done through verse 16. And if we have to be honest, we think of this simple truth. We envision the, the prosecution pausing and looking over at the defense table. Having now detailed that judgment's going to come upon every man. We're going to be judged, evaluated based upon the truth, based upon our deeds, and based upon what we have done with Jesus Christ. And as he has established that entire scope of judgment, we come to the conclusion that all are guilty and are condemned by that exposure. In fact, there's no escape for the defendants. If we could picture the courtroom after the prosecution has explained the, the evidence against all mankind, a hush comes over the courtroom because everybody says, wow, there's a 100% certainty of the accused's guilt. It's a done deal. And yet there's no plea agreement. <laughs> so what is the defense left to do? We've just heard the, the allegations, the evidence that, uh, that literally proves that all men are sinful and are guilty before God. What's the only excuse? What's the one thing the defense can lean to uh, to try to salvage some kind of a, uh, a good result? Shh, Antonio, no, sir. Okay, what is it that they can look at? Well, you'll notice it. It starts in verse 17 and following. It's a failure. It's a sure-to-fail argument, as we might describe it. And yet it's rather comical in its argument and evidence. Uh, notice verse 17. Notice just the first part. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. Now we'll continue. We'll come back to that verse in a second. So what's, what are we getting into? What are we understanding here? Here's what happens. Often in a court case, when the defendant has, the evidence shows he's broken in, he's stolen something. We used the analogy before of breaking in Brother Larry's house. The evidence is clear. The person's on videotape. Uh, they've committed a murder and, and, and they've killed someone and there's been a, 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 whole, uh, a whole gaggle full of witnesses. The evidence is just overwhelming. It's obvious that the person is guilty, as we might say, guilty of sin. What do sometimes they do in a court case to try to get this person mercy, sympathy, out of a harsher sentence? You know what they do? They bring up what's called character witnesses. Yes, he may have done it, but this person's still a pretty good guy. I mean, isn't that what they do? They'll, they'll parade in front of the jury and the judge a group of people to garner sympathy and compassion from them. Uh, again, they're called character references. And so what do we have here? Starting in verse 17, Paul puts into words exactly what the moralistic hypocrite would argue. He say, listen, my character argues for me to escape judgment, for me to get a pass, for me to get, I kind of just slide through. Yeah, some of those things are bad, but look at how I live. Look at who I am. Literally, what we understand here, and there's the word, the character, the moralistic hypocrite, refuted. 
So Paul goes about as he then himself articulates their arguments and what they might argue about. It can almost get humorous, can it? Let's pretend we have Fred on the, uh, uh, there in the courtroom. He's being prosecuted for committing a crime. There's umpteen witnesses against Fred. It's very clear. We have uh, CCTV that shows Fred committing the, the action. And the prosecution has gotten up, and and poor Fred has been proven he's done it. So the defense, the only thing that they can do, and I've seen this in court cases before, they literally bring up all these character witnesses. For instance, the the defense attorney gets up, he says, all right, I'd like to call Fred's co-worker. He'll come, and he'll testify that Fred did his job. He was an ideal employee. Now, can I stop a second? What in the world does that have to do with the crime he did? It doesn't show anything. In fact, it's a, it, it, we'll see it if time permits. The reality is that could be very much a skewed perspective. Now, the second, uh, the defense attorney says, now we'll, invites another witness to the stand, says, now I want you to meet Fred's neighbor. Fred's neighbor's going to testify. He saw him every three to four months, and Fred waved. And... Fred kept his yard mode. Good neighbor. What's a jury supposed to do? Oh, okay, okay, Fred, good guy. Well, maybe we should go easy on him. That's literally what the defense attorney wants. Next witness, the defense attorney calls. Here is, here is Fred's third grade teacher. Fred's third grade teacher is going to tell you that he was a good student. He colored within the lines. He played well with others. I mean, it sounds facetious, doesn't it? It's quite humorous. Reality is, I, I've seen court cases in which that was the case. They literally brought up people just to say, well, he's a nice guy. I don't care if he's a nice guy or not. He's guilty. So what we get in verses 17 and following is a Jew saying, wait a second, wait a second, I'm still a pretty good guy. Uh, what if, you know, they invite Fred's barber? Next witness, character witness, will be Fred's barber. His barber will testify that Fred sat still during his haircut. He listened to what the barber said, and he didn't go for any of those modern haircuts. He was just a good guy. I mean, you could go on and on. We could describe it, and here is Fred's aunt. She'll testify that Fred is her favorite nephew. He always made her laugh, and she spoiled him, and did she mention she's his favorite aunt? It's ludicrous. It's, it, it's crazy. It's humorous. Literally, those kind of witnesses will be called before court trying to win some sympathy, trying to ease the judgment and the punishment that comes from it. And literally, that's what the Jews are saying. And, and you can just imagine, but, 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 I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. That's the Jews' argument. That's literally what Paul anticipates in verses 17 and following. He's saying, wait a second, they're going to argue this. So what does Paul do? Paul now starts in this section, this, this part of this chapter. He's answering the charges um, uh, that these folks are going to offer a good character, a celebrated character, that obviously is going to seem feeble and an unbelievable stretch. Um, and now, this moralistic hypocrite has a name. We read verse 17. Did you catch it? He is a Jew. He's a Jew. So now there's kind of a national face to the moralistic hypocrite. Oh, we can apply some things as we study it. 
But Paul now is going to attempt, to, he's going to counter this kind of thinking in the chapter, exposing the erroneous thinking on the part of the Jew, the moralistic hypocrite, uh, that his self-professed stellar character will exempt him or lessen the blow of the judgment. So Paul proceeds in presenting the evidence of the case. He refutes the celebrated character as inconsequential. This is like a prosecutor would do in a court case. See, a prosecutor would give up, get up after a, uh, after a character witness. Let's say Fred's third grade teacher. He'd get up and he'd basically tell the jury and judge, fantastic, Fred was a good student in third grade. But what does it matter? He committed the crime. And so the same thing is true. You and I can talk to her blue in the face. We can talk about all the good things we've done. We can talk about how the majority of our time that, that we have good character. Can I tell you, my friend, it doesn't change the fact in Romans chapter 3 when we arrive and it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But my barber says, for all have sinned. My neighbor likes me. He says, I'm a great neighbor, for all have sinned doesn't matter your character witness, whether it's you or someone else who's trying to go to bat for you. The fact is, for all have sinned. And we'll see. This is a certain truth. You know, the hardest people to convince that they need Christ are the people who consider themselves religious. Haven't we found that out? We've knocked on doors, and we've talked to somebody around here. Hey, yeah, hey, can, can, uh, do you know for sure that if you died today that you'd go to heaven? Oh, 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 don't worry, I go to church. Oh, don't worry, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Methodist, I'm a, I'm a this, I'm a this, I'm a this. Can I tell you, some of the hardest people for us uh, to reach with Christ are the religious people. Why? Because of this right here. Every argument is ready. Well, you don't know. Listen, listen, listen. I go to church every week. I give. I, 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 I don't do anybody wrong. I, barely, I haven't hardly killed an ant or a mosquito. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't done anything. I, I'm a really good person, and I'm religious. That's exactly what the Jews are doing here. And so Paul is expounding upon, here are the answers. Here, here are the things that shoot that down. Boy, I sure am thankful that Paul and the Holy Spirit led him to do so. To challenge these uh, arguments of the character witnesses. They're convinced that their celebrated character is enough that it dismisses their inherent guilt so let's look exactly what this defense is. You see it there, letter A, it's the character defense. Now notice these arguments raised by the offense. When their guilt is exposed and they just, uh, 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 they, their argument is, but, but I'm this, but I'm this, but I'm this, but I'm this, all the way through. You can just hear the Jew in response to the first 16 verses. Notice it. Look at verse 17. Again, read it. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. What's he saying? Number one, he's saying this, I am a Jew. What does he mean by it? He's simply saying this, I have the heritage. I am a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I belong to that part. Of, I belong to the nation of, now listen for it, God. That should put fear in your shoes. Make you quake. I am a Jew. I boast of God. We are the nation of God. God chose my nation. I am not like the rest of the world, the heathen. You know literally what they're saying? That ought to count for something. 
We've heard it many times before. And maybe, just maybe, it's entered into our hearts and our minds that we're going to stand before God and we're going to convince Him of something. Well, well, you can let go of this sin. Maybe it's in salvation, but maybe not. Maybe for us as believers, it's about how we've lived our lives. And we're trying to say, well, God, look, the good outweighs the bad. Can I tell you, friend, that is not God's economy. God doesn't want your good to outweigh your bad. God wants all of you good. Be ye holy. Be ye righteous. That is the call on our lives. And sometimes we let it in as a person who looks at salvation. Well, I've lived my life better for more good than bad. And sometimes we look at our lives. And we'll stand, expect to, people expect to stand before God and say, well, let me into heaven because my character, my good character outweighs my bad character. My friend, they are in for a rude awakening. Here is the truth. And yea, the principle applies. Sometimes we as Christians, we do the same thing. After salvation and how we live our lives, well, if my good outweighs my bad, then, then God's going to be pleased with me. You know what God's most pleased with? It's you and me living holy lives righteous lives whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do do all to the glory of god that you and i might bring him glory and honor and everything see the jews hey I, 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 I forgive me but i in some ways can't wait to these judgment seats to see people stand before god and list a myriad of things and what will they say it ought to count for something you know, in fact, we have a passage in the New Testament where people come before Christ and are going to stand before God. Remember what they'll say? We've cast out demons in your name. That ought to count for something. We've healed people in your name. That ought to count for something. What's God's response? Depart from me, for I never knew thee. Depart from me. Here are the Jews. Jews are going to stand before God. There's going to be many a Jew who stands before God. They're going to say, hey, hey, I'm a Jew. Look, look at my circumcision. Look, look at my descendancy, uh, my heritage. Look at from whom I descended. That ought to count for something. It doesn't count for anything. Number two, notice it, verse 18. Read it with me. Look at it, verse number 18. And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. Man, you can just, look, look at me. This is all I am. Paul knows it well, doesn't he? What is he saying? Well, as a Jew, they could boast that I have and I know the law. That's literally what verse 18, we knowest his will. God is, here's the Jew, he says, God has given to me and my nation the law. We know his will, his desire. I know the heart and the mind of God is expressed in the law. Literally, did you catch the verse? It says, and approvest the things that are more excellent. Hey, he gave us the temple. He gave us the Ten Commandments. Man, we're something special. We are the Jews. Literally, that's the, the response here. Hey, you're guilty because of your deeds and the truth and because what you've done with Jesus Christ. What did the Jews do with Jesus Christ? They crucified him. So the Jews are as guilty as anybody, and yet what are they still doing? Offering argument after argument after argument. And here it is just as simple. Basically, I grew up learning the law. I know the law inside and out. How did Paul do it and describe himself concerning the law? Blameless. That is the Jews' mindset. What are they basically saying? I'm special. I should get special treatment. Don't you like people who like, want to get special treatment all the time? Hey, I'm special. 
Oh, I know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody. Drop a name. You ever try to drop somebody's name, maybe a police officer's name with another police officer? Good luck on that. I know this person. I know this person. Hey, I know your manager. I mean, that's literally what the Jews are saying in this verse. We have the law. We know God's will. We're something special. All that judgment, it's not going to apply to us. That's literally what they're saying. Notice it, number, the, the third thing just keeps going. Look at verse 19, the first part of verse 20. And art confident. What a statement, isn't it? This is their confidence. That thou thyself art a guide to the blind, of the blind. You're a light of them which are in darkness. And an instructor of the foolish, and we finish up with this statement in verse 20, a teacher of babes. Man, aren't they just high and mighty? <laughs> aren't they just something special? I mean, look at literally what they're saying. Notice it. We know it well. I am a teacher and instructor of the law. Man, I like a, a teacher of babes. Everyone else is so beneath us. I am superior in my knowledge I, the, to the degree, my knowledge is to the degree that I have taught others. I have helped them learn what I know so well. I have been the catalyst for others to be enlightened. Without me, many wouldn't know the law and what it says and what it instructs. I have been instrumental in teaching the foolish. Boy, isn't that just prideful? Here's their, here's their argument. God, this is why verse, the first 16 verses shouldn't apply to me. This is why I should just get a free pass. This is why I'm exempt from it. As a Jew, I have done this. I know the law. I have taught others. I've instructed others. And then uh, they drop this, verse 25. Notice it. Let's just look at verse 25. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But... If thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. We'll deal with what it says in the second part, but notice what Paul's addressing. What does he know a Jew's going to boast of? Uh, number four, I am circumcised. In, in other words, the Jews listing all these things, all these character witnesses in a sense. Hey, I'm a Jew. I know the law. I have it. I'm a teacher and instructor of the law. I'm the light to the, the people who are dark. And if that isn't enough, if that doesn't convince you, I am part of the circumcised. I am what one, only a few people are, a true and genuine Jew. I have the literal physical sign of my belonging to the Jewish nation, a spiritual symbol of that special connection to God. I'm no, I'm no heathen of the uncircumcised. God is pleased with me because I have a token of that special covenant and relationship with him. Literally, what's he saying? I have the mark that sets me above most other people. Now listen to me, you take that, and boy, we would look at that and we say, that is a pious, puffed up, boastful person. Would to God that you and I be very careful that we boast in anything but Christ. That's what Paul writes letter, doesn't he? He says, I don't want to boast in anything. So you and I have to be careful as followers of Jesus Christ that after salvation, we don't look at our lives and we boast in what we've done and what we've accomplished and how we've served him and all these things. We don't look, we don't boast of those things. No, all that is foolish. The only thing you and I can boast of is Jesus Christ. That's who we boast of. What I find interesting, who's writing this? Paul. Who, well, who was Paul? 
mean, a Pharisee. He knew the law inside and out. Can I tell you this? Everything Paul just wrote here, he didn't write it from hearing other people. He wrote it because it was likely in his heart and in his mind before he came to Jesus Christ. He would have thought these very same things. They would have been on the tip of his tongue. If someone asked him, hey, Paul, how do you know you're going, or excuse me, Saul, how do you know you're going to, to heaven? Well, I'm a Jew. I, I, I'm a Pharisee. I know the law inside and out. In fact, I've spent time in the temple teaching others. I have spent my life enlightening others and defending the cause. I am, in fact, he says it later in his list of things that qualify him, in a sense, if he were to boast of being as a man, he says, I'm circumcised. I'm of the tribe of. He's boasting. See, Paul, these things, or he would have been able to boast of, excuse me, these things have been in his heart and mind before, before he came to know Jesus Christ. Before he experiences what he's getting to in the end of this chapter, a circumcision, not physically of the body, but a circumcision of the heart. And so when Paul comes to that, he knows exactly what to write. He knows exactly how to combat this boasting, these character witnesses that are brought before uh, in someone's heart that would, in a sense, come to testify, to, to try to get them out, to make them exempt from the judgment. So what does Paul do? He refutes their arguments. He dismantles their character defense. And how do we see that? Well, number one, let me show you this and uh, what time we have left. First of all, we saw the character defense. We saw these things, these four things that the Jew would brag of. Now, listen, this is what Paul does. As a great prosecutor, and boy, this is a great word, isn't it? He debunks the character. What does debunk mean? Well, I love giving you a definition because I think it's so apropos in this situation. Uh, literally, the definition of to, to debunk means to expose the falseness. Now, notice this or hollowness of. When I think of hollowness, hollowness, you know what I think of? A chocolate Easter bunny. You remember biting into a chocolate Easter bunny and you were hoping it was solid milk chocolate and all it was was an empty shell. Nothing inside. He is literally saying, okay, let's look at all these things you claimed. Let's look at being a Jew and, and, and knowing the law and teaching the law. Let's look at circumcision and, and let's see it. He's going to expose it for its hollowness. The second definition, and this is great, it is to reduce the inflated reputation of. He is going to take them, and as we would say it, chop them down to size. He's going to take every single one of these arguments, and he's going to say, okay, let's talk about that. Let's look at it biblically. Let's look at it from the perspective of truth. What do we really know about the Jews? And he, so he begins to do that. He all answers the character defense of the Jews succinctly and forcefully. And literally, again, courtroom illustration, he presents an airtight case. We'll have time, and we'll probably have to end with this one. The first one is this. He says this and shows them that their celebrated knowledge of the law is lacking substance. Lacking substance. Look again at verse 20. Remember, verse 20 is the one where it says, we're an instructor of the foolish. It comes on the, the, the heels of, we know the law. We know the will of God. Now, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. Now, notice the statement. He describes them. Which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. 
Now, there's an interesting statement here that we find. He makes a charge against them in just these very few short words. And they're boasting about the law. Paul says, okay, let's look at this. What do you really know about the law? How does it show up in your life? Let's peel back the layers spiritually and see. You know what he says? You know what we're going to find? Like the inside of that Easter bunny, all we're going to find is layers or emptiness after we peel back the layers. It's going to be hollow. There's not going to be any substance to it. Um, In other words, there was real, how does he put it? Did you see the rest of the verse? There's no real substance to their knowledge and understanding of the law. Literally the truth of the law. They they had a shell of it. In fact, let's give you another illustration. Okay, you see uh, up above here, you see the man in the picture. Okay, well, yes and no, right? Because you don't really see a man. What do you see? An outline of it. Okay, maybe kind of looks like a crime committed. But anyway, that's appropriate for a court case illustration. Okay, anyway. You don't see the man. What do you see? You see an outline of a man, right? It is the shell. It is the picture. It is the representation of it. Literally, what Paul was saying is this. When we look at you, what do we see about the law? We just see a shell. We see an outline of the law. Yeah, you know there's Ten Commandments. You know this. But boy, when we get inside of you, when we look at your life, you have not taken the truths of that law. You have not understood the knowledge of that law quite the charge paul is saying whoa whoa, you boast in the law but the reality is you do not know it as well as you think you know it literally they had a form of the knowledge and of the truth in the law but they didn't have the real thing there's only one other place you see this verse here the word form there's only one other place in the entire scriptures specifically the new testament that the greek word is used can you think about it you probably think of it if I gave you more time, but it's in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5. Remember this statement? Having a form of godliness, but what? Denying the power thereof. From such turned away. What is that a description of? The last days. Paul says what? Hey, in the last days, they'll become, uh, and he gives a long description of what men will act like, both saved and unsaved. There'll be some who, in fact, the verse right above this is what? They're lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They love entertainment and the pleasures of this world and this life more than they love God. And then he comes to this verse and they said, listen, they have an outline of relationship with God. They have the, the, what looks like they know God. They love God. They're living for God. But reality is they're denying the power thereof. What they could have, they don't have. And what you might at first guess think they have, they don't. They have a form of it. They have just the outline of it. Have you ever, and you know, someone did this to my kids. They they took a gum wrapper. You ever do this? Take a gum wrapper, put it in the package. Hey, would you like a piece of gum? And it's just a gum wrapper. And then you laugh when they grab it and try to open it and there's nothing there. Someone, some evil person here at church taught my kids that and they did it to me (laughs) shame on you rowdy is this that's pretty disappointing isn't it when you get that piece of candy even worse how about this someone offers me a dr pepper and it's already open and empty how cruel now that's cruel for some of you it'd be a chocolate candy bar Ooh. and you open it it's empty that's what paul's saying to the jews 
That's what this verse is saying, that there's some in the end times. You believe we're in the last days? I sure do. In the end times, there's going to be some people who have a form of godliness. Well, yeah, they say they're saved. Yeah, they say they go to church. And maybe they are saved, but they're denying. They're just babes. There's no growth to their relationship like we talked about a couple Sunday nights ago. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. We could say tonight that there are many on this earth right now that, like the Jews, fit into that description. They have the potential for knowing God closely. Can I tell you, the Israelites had everything they needed to know God closely, intimately, to be assured that they were children of God spiritually, but they did not have that power. They had all the the outward lookings. They, They had the outline of it. But they didn't know God, many of the Jews. They didn't have that saving faith. Many have the potential to walk with Him, but they fail to do it. There's no substance to their religion. Or for a believer, there's no substance to their relationship with God. And so Paul simply debunks their claim of knowing the law inside and out. In other words, why should you know the law? The whole point of the law is to do what? Bring us to God. And I'll tell you tonight, God bless you if you memorize Scripture. You ought to. You hide it away in your heart. But I'll tell you, you can know a whole lot of Scripture without knowing the God of Scripture. And so there's a challenge for us. You can serve the God in heaven without knowing the God in heaven. You can come and sit in this church without knowing God. And all those things can be said the same way that you and I can come and do all those things and we may be saved, but... We're denying the power of what we could have. Thriving relationship with Him. And so as the character witnesses have come and gone for the defendant, the moralistic hypocrite, the Jew, Paul one by one addresses them. He's saying there is nothing meritorious in their character, especially here when it came to their knowledge and use of the law. The Jews are going to try for the rest of this chapter to keep giving character illustrations and saying, well, but, but, but this, as we've already seen, and we'll see succinctly how Paul destroys and dismantles each one. We'll have to come back next week. We'll finish up the chapter and get into the beginning of chapter 3. Let me encourage you a couple prayer requests to pray for. Obviously, we already mentioned Brother Rich and Angela. Pray for their recovery there. And uh, Brother Cliff, you want to bring those to me? Pray for the car.